0: Welcome to our third episode of Spoleto Backstage for 2019. I'm Adam Parker with the Charleston Post and Courier, and your host. I'm here at the Gileard Center in downtown Charleston, ground zero for Spoleto Festival USA. The box office is here. This is one of the major venues. Salome is produced here at the Gileard. And we will be speaking here in this lovely remote studio of South Carolina Public Radio with a number of intriguing artists involved both with Spoleto Festival USA and Piccolo Spoleto Festival. We'll be speaking with Paul Wianco, composer in residence of the uh, Spoleto Festival chamber music series at the Dock Street Theater, Lillian Henley, and Paul Barrett of 1927, the theater company. But first up is Sarah Girose, a multi instrumentalist. String Player Extraordinaire, part of this uh, amazing trio, I'm With Her. The other members are Sarah Watkins and Aoife O'Donovan. And they've been playing together for a little while. We'll hear all about that. Sarah has been playing for a number of years. She's put out uh, a few really well-received and influential records. Uh, She's capable of just about anything. She's got a lovely voice as well, I might add. And we spoke with her from nashville tennessee she was um finishing up a gig there and we were ensconced in our studio in columbia south carolina it might sound like uh we're sitting in the same room but that's the magic of radio people welcome sarah
1: hello thanks for having me
0: so good to be talking with you you too so so i am first of all very curious about how the three of you sarah watkins you sarah gerose And Aoife O'Donovan coordinate everything. You're so busy. You're doing so many things all over the place. And yet you obviously find a lot of time to get together and rehearse and play and put out these amazing records. Uh, How do you juggle the logistics of this?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's funny that we've been a band since 2014, but we just have this one record that came out last year. And that's because this band really as you're saying took a lot of foresight and belief in the long game and patience i think we knew pretty much from the get-go that this was something that was really special that we wanted to basically invest a lot of time in and that wasn't necessarily something that we could do right off the bat because we all had solo records that were coming out and so we were really patient and especially in the beginning of the band we kind of would get together in these little Writing stints and working up other people's music, and wound up recording our record in January of 2016. And then mm. basically had to sit on it for two years um, to have, you know, the, the spring the of last moment. year to find the yeah. perfect moment. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of patience.
0: Wow. So, but you knew right from the onset that you had this chemistry and that you had something special going.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's this band is, is interesting because we've all known each other for such a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, Although Sarah Watkins and I have definitely gotten to know each other better over the course of being in this band. I think she and I had always run into each other at festivals and stuff, but I was more closely linked with Chris Thiele, I think, just by nature of playing the mandolin. And yes. so he was always my, a bit of my closer mentor. Chris but is it's... a
0: common denominator for our listeners. <laughs> uh, you, right. You've played on uh, Live From Here and before that Prairie mm-hmm. Home Companion uh, yep. with Chris a lot, right? And, and he yeah. even made a guest appearance on your first record.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's played on several of my records. In fact, gosh, it's like him and those early Nickel Creek records were a big part of why I wanted to start playing music in the first place. Mm. You know, now especially, it feels very kind of full circle to now be in a band with, with Sarah and and Efa. You know, Crooked Still was was um, very influential to me as well. So it's pretty cool, and I think that's it says a lot about the acoustic music world that that all three of us kind of come from. That you know. <laughs> they were kind of two of my heroes and eventually those lines just were blurred and we're friends and and yeah. basically just making music together
0: I'm sure they thought very highly of you too and, and the work you've been doing so s- this community of string players is relatively small everybody sort of knows everybody else and mm-hmm. you've played a lot with other colleagues all over the place there's a lot of mixing and matching and guest appearances on records and all this kind of thing and you get a chance to play with the older generation some of some of your mentors and idols, can you describe for us a particular thrill, you know, uh, have you ever just been starstruck on stage, you know, (laughs) amazed that you were standing by so-and-so? And And what sort of big lessons have you learned from your elders?
1: Well, I feel so, so blessed to have had so many of those moments, and like you're saying, I think that's the nature of a lot of these kind of bluegrass, folk, acoustic, whatever you want to call it, festivals, you know, that I grew up going to, that there is this culture of people saying, hey, jump up on stage and play a tune with us, Mm -hmm. and very last minute. And I think the instrumentation lends itself to that, you know, that just throw up a mic and play your acoustic instrument into a mic. But also the songs, it's its its the culture to this aural tradition being passed down, not in a written form. I mean, in terms of like a super pinch me moment, I, I, uh, I would say that Paul Simon is probably one of my all time biggest musical heroes. And um, early on, I think it was maybe one of the first Shows that Chris Thiele was hosting when it was just transitioning from a Prairie Home Companion into his newly hosted show, right. and Paul Simon was the guest. Wow! And so we got to the the house band got to play a couple of songs with him. He I remember he had this new song called Wristband, that's pretty funny. I I really like it. Um, I just remember. About some, yeah, the yeah, security guard not letting him backstage <laughs> because he does not have a wristband. But just you know. I, there was something so crazy about that moment of just standing right behind him on stage and clapping along and singing along to a song that was really, it was just so special to be like, here's Paul Simon and he's just a human and he's standing right there and we're making music together. It was, I think I learned that it's just, it's so fun to have heroes and to kind of get really excited and kind of blow things out of proportion almost Mm -hmm. and, and have this fantastical idea of, of musicians and rock stars and all that, but it's also good to just remember, like, oh, we're all just we're all just humans and we're all just in this together. And right. he's he's making music in the same way that I'm making music on stage. And and that was a really because he's just about as good as it gets, in my opinion. So that was a, such a special.
0: That's great. Moment. That's great. So let's talk about Spoleto and I'm with her. So what are you going to do? Oh, Have you man. been? You've been to Charleston before or no?
1: I have been several times. I played at Spoleto a, a long time ago, and I played at the Charleston Music Hall several times. That's I right. love it so much.
0: That's great. Are you going to have any time in in Charleston, or is it just sort of in and out?
1: Unfortunately, it's the nature of our touring is kind of in and out. Yeah. Um, but I've had time there in the past, thankfully, and it, I'm. I just always, even if we only have a day there, I, all of us, Eva and Sarah and I. We just so look forward to, to being back in Charleston and eating lots of food.
0: And you're going to be right, right, the food scene there, right. And so you're going to be in the cistern yard, which is a gorgeous mm-hmm. setting, just gorgeous at the College of Charleston Outdoor, and uh, they set up a, a stage on this old uh, well or whatever it is, and, um, and what will you do? Do you have any special plans for this gig?
1: Well, I, so I actually, the last time I played at Spoleto, that was the same stage that I played on. I was, it was magical with the, all the Spanish moss trees all around. So we're, you know, we've, we've been playing, it, it's kind of crazy to be over a year into this record cycle, playing these songs, and it's so fun to still be discovering new things about these songs mm-hmm. that we wrote together. And so we'll, we'll be playing a lot of stuff from the record. We've kind of worked up some new covers um you know and over the course of the last year being on the road uh i think covers are really particularly special for this band because that's kind of how we formed almost just the love of playing other people's songs before we ever even wrote songs together as the three of us and we have a new song that came out in january call my name um so we'll be playing that and a bunch of different stuff
0: Thanks, Sarah. I'm With Her performs Saturday, June 1st at 9 o'clock in the Cistern Yard on the College of Charleston campus. Beautiful, beautiful venue. Well, from string music in America to the Great Depression. Okay, I'm kidding. But it is 1927 we're talking about. Not the Dust Bowl, but rather 1927, Theatre Company, London-based, which mixes up all kinds of things, animation and acting and theatre and video projections and live music. We have Bradley Fuller talking to 1927 composer Lillian Henley and animator, designer and co-founder Paul Barrett. Take it away, Bradley. Paul, Lillian, thanks
2: for joining me.
3: Hello. Hello.
2: Paul, to start with you, since you had a hand in the founding of 1927, how did the theatre company decide on that name?
3: uh, (laughs) Well, it's a very popularly asked question. Um, Yeah, it's because that's when the first talkie film came out. Anyone who saw Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, which we brought to Spilett many years ago now, will know that, that we were very influenced by silent film when we first started out, and a lot of stuff... We still are, and you certainly get, get that in the new show as well. But, yeah, so the, the, it was the aesthetic of silent film and the silent film era was um, really important for us, and so, yeah, that was the year we chose. We knew we wanted to do a year, and it was something like in the 1920s, and then we, we decided 1927 1927s or...
2: A roaring decade. It was a a roaring
3: decade. A roaring year, you know.
2: Given the multidisciplinary nature of 1927's productions, how do you decide where to start?
3: Ah, uh, well, I mean, you know, each show is different. For Roots, it was very much... We knew we wanted to do something about folk tales and folk stories, and we started um, investigating that, and Suzanne went into the British Library and found this book called The Arne Index, which is um, like an index of folk stories, and, like, uh, it's kind of maddening in its breadth, really, like, it's it's vast. Each little entry in it will sort of... It will give you the very bare bones of a story... And Sue's really liked that as it was, it was a really good springboard for her writing. So she would get like a very bare bones little story and then extrapolate the story out from that. And so we ended up with a set of stories that we really liked. And then we just started um, working them up into pieces. So it's very much a portmanteau piece with um, lots of little short stories, this one. And yeah, Sue is so, the
2: writer. Yeah,
3: Sue is the, the, is the writer and director and um, fellow co-artistic director.
2: Now, are these stories close to the Brothers Grimm type tales, or maybe more modern Disney movies, or are some of these little quirkier? <coughs> corp- no,
3: they're <laughs> not. Nothing. No, they're all that. None of them are really. Um, they're, they're more like peasant tales, or, or I think a lot of the ones she got out of the sort. Of, like, we we call them folk jokes as well in the title, and I think that kind of sums them up quite well. They're ones that just tickled toes when she saw them in there, and it was it was kind of a pretty random process. Really, there wasn't like. It was just ones we liked.
2: Well, you as animator and illustrator, if you're drawing on these old folktales tales that haven't been adapted, you know, in more modern context so much and that obviously we don't necessarily have photographs of some of these events, does that free you up to let your imagination run wild or does it kind of make you feel like you're not sure where to, where to start
3: well uh, I don't know with, with the way we always work is like we we always look at um, aesthetics and things like that and, and we'll be just go, oh it'll be good to do it like that like the Griselda police we've done in sort of a, a baroque style they, they're all quite lo- lots of different styles for each story it's quite a different style there's like the sort of my classic gritty realism style which we use <laughs> quite a bit and then there's sort of You know, like, we've got one which looks a bit more like a Betty Boopie-type cartoon, like one of those early cartoons. And so, you know, there's all these different influences, one which is much more folky-looking and things like that. There's lots of different influences for the aesthetics, and it's just according to the piece, really, what we thought was appropriate for the piece.
2: Lillian, turning to you now as composer for 1927's production, it seems to me that the live scoring for this show from what I've heard, it's every bit as imaginative as the other aspects. I read of a score involving Peruvian prayer boxes, donkey jaws, violins, and musical saws. And I know what one and a half of those are, I think, when it comes to music. So is inventive instrumentation one of your hallmarks?
4: Well, I feel very privileged to have worked with our musicians in the show. And they have brought their experience in history and their instruments. And it was like a treat of, wow, what can you play what would you like to offer to the show and let's see if we can write themes for the folk stories with your amazing instruments so really I was just responding to their incredible collections yeah we had lots of exciting talks about donkey jaws and these and these other sort of wonderful instruments that have are still very much you know we're always working progress with our show so unfortunately Some donkey jaw isn't actually in this one now but um it might make a comeback you never know <laughs> yeah so that we've also got this incredible instrument called the baron bow, which we were really inspired by the look of it as much as the sound it can only play two notes and it's made from this one string which is a gourd I think it's a plant-based I think the actual it's made from plant I believe I could yeah be wrong well it, that.
3: it looks almost like a bow and arrow it has like yeah. a, um it has like a, a wire like that and then then there's a gourd which is the, the a gourd is attached to it which amplifies it and then you hold that on your belly and you can sort of wang the gourd that's that's probably <laughs> definitely the right terminology.
4: Yeah, we're very technical with how we play with these new instruments like, yeah, Dave, can you can you do that? Yeah, Dave's great, got loads
3: great. of Dave's the um percussionist with all of yeah. these crazy instruments and
4: And so that was the so we used that for the um the story called Two Fish because we just love the aesthetic and the sound of it. It was just beautiful. Um, and it co- has this slightly sort of melancholic drone-like feel to it. So we go between a D and a C sharp for, for Dave's part and then Francesca, she takes the violin melody and because these instrumentalists are at the top of the game, it was like, oh, I'm going to write this. Let's see what how it sounds. And of course, they can just make it sound really... Easy and so it was, yeah, a joy being able to kind of um, have this palette and it was totally inspired by their unique skills and and musicianship. So we have a viola for the Baroque piece that we thought, and then and we also have a dulcimer. When we first met David, I think my first reaction when I heard him play was just to sit up and dance, and I thought, okay, well that's a good sign. So yeah, let's go with the dulcimer and see what happens. So yeah, so if we're very fortunate. We've had this lovely collaboration, and they've responded really well to everything that we've thrown at them, and certainly with the melody and often the way I work is through improvisation and then I set it and then score it but with our previous work it's more we've mainly had a piano live score from the silent film background that we've I suppose we've created together as a sort of always having always having how does the music serve the action but and also the the picture image it's really important to kind of I feel to serve it as best as possible um, without obviously being subservient, but at the same time really supporting the action. Um, and we have this other element with our show where we have the stories read by our friends and family. Again, the the role of the music was just try and um, bring all these elements together so that nothing jumps out too much and, and everyone can hear the stories.
2: Is it hard synchronizing the music with those other elements or...
4: It's very, very precise, yes. And there's always this element where we're like, no, we're going to keep this one. This show is going to be much looser and the music can play a bit more like a bed and the, the stories can kind of um, leap out off the off the page, essentially. And so let's make the score much more loose. And, of course, it's a very hard detail because, of course, everything that you have, it just craves this precision. And maybe it's a natural instinct that myself, Suzanne, Paul, and Esme always have as creators, but it's trying really hard this time to each separate story to have a completely distinct sound depending on what was needed. Although we had to work in a way that we were working alongside so ideally you know we'd have had everything beforehand but because of the way that we work it takes so long to build anything and the idea is always are constantly changing in order to, to get the best idea you know still things were we arriving quite near the end and thinking okay right this is now going to shift so i have to change this and even shifting the order obviously affects how you put the whole show together and the sound and the the themes of it um so yeah it was a really exciting challenge trying to try to work in a different way but of course you're using your skills that we've um always brought in order to make a classic 1927 show
2: Paul, Lillian, it's been great having you. Thanks so much for joining me today.
4: Thank Likewise. you. Thanks.
3: Yeah.
0: Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lillian. Wang the Gourd. That should be your next play, I think, right? Uh, Roots can be seen at 7 o'clock, May 28th, at the Emmett Robinson Theatre. And now, from Colorful Theatre, we welcome Paul Wianco composer-in-residence at the Spoleto Festival Chamber Music Series this year, at the Dock Street Theater. Uh, Paul has a very interesting and eclectic background. I think he played some punk music, you know, cello punk. Uh, We'll hear about that. Bradley Fuller, bad Brad, had a very interesting conversation with Paul, and we'll hear a little bit about some of the works he's presenting this year in the series as well. Paul, it's great to have you.
5: Thanks for uh, having me here.
0: Let's go back in time
2: a bit and discuss your musical beginnings. I read that after starting cello at age five, you composed your first piece at age
5: eight. Uh, That sounds about right, Uh, if you can call it a piece. I think it was uh, maybe a 32 measure little tune, mostly in C major, mostly consisting of a couple triads, and I believe it was called Breeze, and I had uh, one of my parents' friends uh, print out the sheet music for it, and... After that, I took about a 20-year hiatus from composing.
2: So there was a lot that happened there in the meantime, including uh, your pursuit of a cello performance degree, uh, during which time you converted your dorm room into a recording studio.
5: Right. I think I'm allowed to talk about that now without uh, getting into trouble with the administration. <laughs> it's been enough enough years have passed. D- during college, I experimented a lot with music and uh, arranging and recording and uh, electronica and programming sounds and sampling sounds. And part of that process was uh, soundproofing my dorm room and spending what little savings I had on a mic, I think from Radio Shack, and had some people kind of just show up in my room every once in a while to lay down some tracks. And, yeah, that was my kind of introduction into the non-classical world.
2: And so while you were studying the, the Bach cello suites or the Elgar cello concerto, you were also working in these other genres, right? Yeah,
5: exactly. I think one year I went to Poland for this cello uh, uh, competition, Ludoslawski competition, and ended up playing Ludoslawski concerto with the Polish Radio Symphony there. And when I came home a few days after that, I had some recording sessions for like a local punk band uh, in my dorm room. So it was like a a stellar month for me. I was so, I was like, can this be my life? Get to play Ludoslawski and record with punk bands. It's the greatest thing ever. So I've tried to sort of carry that uh, sensibility with me wherever I can. So, and yeah, I mean,
2: on top of that, you've you've collaborated with performers as diverse as Chick Corea, Yo-Yo Ma, the Talkich, and Jack Quartets. So, you'd say that this musical mix is vitally important to you.
5: Absolutely. And, um, I think it's, it's become vitally important to many of my peers, too, who sort of grew up in similar musical environments. Uh, in high school, I sort of thought I was the only one who I play classical music and I love Fugazi, you know. But I think a lot of the people now who I work with had very similar experiences growing up with integrating classical music into a broader musical taste. Right now, uh, working with the Saint Lawrence Quartet, it's just an incredible thing to witness the the sense of unity and uh, partnership, and it's uh, really a wonderful family. And I'm grateful to interact with them, get to work with them a little bit.
2: That's right, because the Saint Lawrence Quartet will be premiering alongside oboist James Austin Smith, your oboe quintet.
5: This yes, festival. Uh, it's beyond an honor to have written for these guys. I've. I've uh, been listening to their records since I was a little kid. and How did the commission come about? I think it was uh, the oboist James Austin Smith, uh, who's a friend of mine. Uh, he heard the Izuri Quartet perform uh, my piece Lift a year or two ago. He got it in his mind that he wanted an oboe piece from me. And he said, I have these uh, four quartet musicians that are friends of mine, and I'll run it by them and see if they want to make a quintet with me. And when I found out that he was talking about the St. Lawrence Quartet, yeah, I flipped out.
2: (laughs) Do you feel any pressure writing for this group you've been
5: listening to for years? No more than usual. (laughs) Anytime I think you write a note that anyone else is going to play, there's an inherent pressure to make it good and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, for me, the pressure is more of a general, maybe sort of an existential issue to just write honestly and for my music to be as direct a connection as possible to how I'm feeling, which has been a, it's a tricky thing, I think, for any composer.
2: So is that what you mean by writing honestly, like bringing out your feelings, or is there another component to it? That's That's...
5: Basically, what it is, it's so there's so many uh, technical processes that happen between having a musical idea to getting it performed, including it somehow recording the idea, getting it down on paper, getting it down on paper in a way that's going to be represented well by uh, someone who is conveying those ideas. Um, so, in that process, there are a lot of ways to lose sight and kind of lose the thread of. The emotional aspect which is kind of a an amazing thing to listen to a piece and to feel the the composer's presence there with you the way uh, that's so clear in, in beethoven and brahms there's almost nothing in the way at all the music is just kind of an extension of their emotion and their personality so that's been that's been my goal is to have that be a more direct link are we getting too philosophical? No, this is right <laughs> up my alley. Fantastic.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then your piece for cello quartet, which is When the Night. Is this a nocturne of sorts?
5: Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, it's kind of a lullaby. When the Night is a sort of a cheesy title, I guess. It's based on the first three notes slash lyrics slash words of Ben E. King's Stand By Me, that tune. I was wondering. Yeah, so you have the... Yadadim. Those three notes. Oh God! Can you edit that out?
2: I think it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs>
5: um, so yeah, that's kind of the vibe of the piece. There's a little bit of R&B in there and soul. Um, but those three notes somehow—I love it so much. It sets up that song perfectly. They're, it's so simple, and it's—it's. It's, so those three notes kind of occur all over the piece and are used as transitional elements. of the first three notes of the piece, and it's—it is also yeah nocturne. I think it's a great kind of festival piece. There's some jazzy elements and some beautiful four-part harmonies with four cellos, which is the only cello quartet that I've written so far, but that is definitely kind of a dream instrumentation for me. I think if there are any cello quartets out there listening and you want a cello quartet, just write me an email. I could write cello quartets for the rest of my life. <laughs>
2: Well, Paul, thanks for joining me, and all the best for the Chamber Music Series this year, especially for that world premiere.
5: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you, Bradley Fuller, and thank you, Paul Wianco, composer in residence of the Chamber Music Series. Paul's music will be, and Paul, actually, will be featured in three of the series programs, the first, the third, and the fifth. All prime numbers, I might point out. And uh, the second program in which he's features, which is the third chamber music program, got that, will feature the oboe quintet, a world premiere of Paul's oboe quintet, featuring the St. Lawrence String Quartet and James Austin Smith on oboe. You can hear these programs featuring Paul's work and all the other chamber music programs on Bradley's show, Sonatas and Soundscapes, starting May 31st. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, dot, 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 suspense, suspense, my picks, Adam's picks, the event calendar. Well, I'm not going to tell you about everything going on in the next few days, but I am going to point out a couple of things that you may or may not be interested in. One is Bill T. Jones, Arnie Zane Company. They're presenting a trio, a trilogy of works. And uh, up next is Dora at 730. Tuesday night at Meminger Auditorium, or if you're in the mood for big band jazz, try Daphnis Prieto Big Band. Uh, he's got a gig at uh, the Gilead, and it's going to be big. Suffice it to say, and very rhythmic because it's a Cuban big band, and of course it would be very rhythmic. Or if you want to try something really, really interesting, uh, pay no attention to the girl which is a theater production at the Wolf Street Playhouse, 7 o'clock Wednesday, May 29th. And be sure to listen to our previous episode in which we spoke with David Herskowitz, the director. Spoleto Backstage is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer is A.T. Shire. Project director is Sherry Hutchinson. Special thanks to Spileto Festival's Jesse Bagley and Jenny Willett. Our groovy Spoleto backstage music was composed by Charleston musician Nick Jenkins. Thank you to the College of Charleston for providing a podcast pod, and big thanks to the Gileard Center for hosting our remote studio. If you wanna hear us every time the podcast comes out, subscribe to NPR One, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or go to postandcourier.com or SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us, review us, give us those stars. For Spoleto Backstage,
3: I'm Adam Parker.